0: Good morning, and welcome to the radio broadcasts of the Brinesburg Missionary Baptist Church.
1: Jesus won the victory at breaking.
0: Today you'll be listening to the message preached by our pastor, Brother Brad Walker, during our Sunday morning worship service. May God bless you as you listen to his message.
2: Amen. Thank you, Dee, for that special music. If you will, this morning, turn with me in your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue our Look here at Ephesians four and the issue of unity. Ephesians chapter four, and this morning we're going to be focused on <clears throat> these first three verses and, and actually verse two in particularly. But Ephesians chapter four, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for this opportunity to spend time on your word, Lord. We thank you for the way that you continue to show us how we can be a people who are unified, a people who love one another, and therefore the watching world around us has a a, a right testimony of who you are. Uh, Lord, that you are the one who unites. You're the reason that we can love one another in this way, even though we come from different places and different situations and circumstances. Lord, there's a unity because of who we are in Christ. And so, Lord, today I I pray for those who may be here and don't don't yet know you as Savior and Lord. I pray that today they recognize that you desire to have that relationship with them and that they're a sinner and they're in desperate need of that relationship and they would come to you. But also I pray for those of us who have that relationship, Lord, we would grow in closer unity with one another, but more more importantly, we would grow in even greater unity with you and and your spirit. Lord, I, I pray this morning that you might again hide behind the cross that only you would be seen and only you'd be heard. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may ask why we're spending so much time on these particular verses, and, you know, I've been asked that, you know, why don't you just move on, preacher? Uh, But the reason is, is because these verses are so important um, to the the correct functioning of the church, that we have unity is so important. Here in the middle verse of this section here, in verse 2 in particular, uh, Paul speaks about the path to unity. In this verse, Paul mentions five qualities that each member of the body must possess if there is to be true, if there is to be lasting unity in the church. And so the first of those qualities that we've already considered last week was the idea of of lowliness. Uh, It speaks of the idea of to think or to judge with lowliness, to possess lowliness of mind. It speaks of humility. And humility, as we learned last time, is the quality or condition of being humble, a modest opinion or estimate of one's own importance or rank. And the word here for for lowliness literally means a deep sense of one's littleness. It's not thinking little of oneself, it's just not thinking of oneself at all. It's, It's being focused on Christ. Genuine humility or lowliness is the absolute polar opposite of pride, which is thinking only of oneself. And so, the other qualities that Paul mentions in these verses flow from that humble spirit. And that's why we spent so much time on it last week, is that that builds the foundation for everything that we're going to look at this week. And so when we come to this place where we are truly humble, these other qualities will naturally then become a part of our life. They'll be the fruit of our life. Unfortunately, we seem to be in a constant search For humility, Thus, other qualities are lacking as well. Because we don't have that humble spirit, because we struggle with pride, these other qualities are hard to find in our lives. And as elusive as humility and these other qualities are, they are essential if we are to have true unity within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when these qualities are a part of each of our lives, unity then will be the natural result. And that's why it's so important. That's why we're spending so much time here. And so when there is pride within us, the very unity of the church is threatened, so we must guard against it. So this morning, join me as we focus in on these first three verses, and particularly verse number two, as, as we uh, look at these remaining four qualities. Please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And let's look at uh, Ephesians 4. Let's look at these first three verses today. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You may be seated. So we're going to spend the remainder of our time together this morning looking at the path to unity, really focusing in here on verse number 2. Now we're going to travel around a little bit. Uh, We won't just be in Ephesians this morning as we talk about this, but particularly be looking and focusing here on verse number two as we think about the path to to unity. And the first thing we see that he mentions here in verse number two is the idea, after the idea of lowliness, is the idea of meekness. Now, when you hear that word meekness, we often think of someone who is weak. So often the world combines those two ideas. That meekness equals weakness. We think someone who is a 90-pound weakling. The word does not refer to that, though. We're not talking about some mamby-pamby tree-hugging hug crybaby. That's not what meekness is. Weakness has nothing to do at all with what we refer to when we talk about biblical meekness. This word carries the idea of, of gentleness. Or mildness. It does not speak of weakness at all, but of the power under control of a master. Power under control equals meekness. It brings to mind the idea of a, of a wild stallion that has been broken by a master. The horse, though it has been broken, still retains all of that wild power that it once had. Now, though, it has been brought under The control of the master. It it is guided in a a particular direction now. And so if you have seen the lions and the tigers maybe at the circus, that is also a picture of meekness, of power under control. You've seen those, those huge cats with all the power they have. And if they wanted to, and we sometimes sadly see that happen, they turn on the lion tamer. But most of the time, they're under control. And even though they have great power, they're able to be made to do some amazing things under the control, that power under control of the lion tamer, of the master. They have yielded control to that master lion tamer. Meekness is a direct result of true humility. The meek person has the power to revenge hurts. However, they yield that power to the master to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, when they are wrong, they react like Christ would react. There is no anger or retaliation. There's simply the forgiveness and the love that the Lord Jesus Christ directs them to show to those around about them. Meekness is the spirit of Christ in action within the Christian. And so when they were come to that place, it tells us in Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 34, he says, And when they were come to that place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said, Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiments and cast lots. Do you understand what kind of power Jesus Christ had on that cross? We know, Jesus tells us, that if he had wanted to, he could have called down legions of armies of angels to have avenged him. But he was meek. It was the greatest power in all of the world, in all of the universe, in all of creation, under control. That is meekness. Even when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter drew that sword to defend the Lord. And Jesus responded in meekness and had him put that sword away. He he healed that ear of Malchus. And he said, that's not what I need here. This is power under control. That's not to suggest that Jesus never became, became angry because truly we know that he did. He was angry when he cleansed the temple. He was angry when he confronted the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. The difference between us and the Lord Jesus Christ is that Jesus is sinless. Thus, he always controls his anger. He was always angry about the right things at the right times in the right manner for the right degree. That's the difference. When we get angry, it's because we feel that we have been slighted and our rights have been stepped on. Somebody has hurt my feelings, and so I become angry, and I become angry for the wrong reasons. I become angry at the wrong time and in the wrong manner. And to the wrong degree, that's the difference. Our anger is always self-centered. Thus, we have issues with anger. And so meekness speaks of spiritual and moral strength that is not self-assertive, pushy, or heavy-minded, or heavy-handed. We have several biblical examples of of that kind of meekness throughout Scripture. We think of, of David. David was a warrior David was a man's man. This guy took out a giant with a slingshot. I mean, think about that. A sling and a stone and he took down a giant. And yet, he was praised by Saul for his meekness because David did not kill Saul when he had the opportunity. Power under control. Moses was a passionate leader and he stood up to Pharaoh. He confronted Israel for their rebellion and their idolatry. He even confronted the Lord and challenged him to forgive the sins of Israel. And yet he was held as the meekest of men. Power under control. And so people who are angry and angered by every nuisance and every inconvenience know nothing at all about meekness. I'm sure we've got some friends who were headed down to Florida this this weekend who maybe got a little frustrated, we would say, with the driving conditions. An interstate, a packed interstate with traffic jams, can test our meekness. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. We're able to control that anger. We're able to control those things. The strongest person in the world is not the man or the woman who can put others in their place. Rather, the strongest person in the world is the man or the woman who can control their reactions to all the events of life. And so, let me make a few closing observations about meekness. Biblical meekness is simply the ability to exercise restraint. Meekness is a part of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul speaks of there in Galatians chapter 5, verse 23. And it should be a part, then, of every believer's life. All of us should have that characteristic of meekness in our life because it's part of not the fruits of the, of the Spirit. The fruit, that fruit should be evident in all of our lives. It's not just that. Oh, well, I don't have that. No, you better. It's supposed to be there because you know Christ. We should have a meekness just like him. Meekness is the opposite of vengeance and vindictiveness. Meekness is seen in willingness to yield to the Word of God, regardless of what it says or teaches. Meekness is seen in a willingness to forgive and to restore those who have fallen in to sin. Meekness is seen in a willingness to pray for and to seek the salvation of the lost, whereas the the proud person will then look down on the unconverted and feel morally superior to them. Oh, I'm glad I don't do those things. I feel like I'm so much better because I don't live the way they do. That's not the way a meek person lives. The meek person is not weak. They are Christ-like in all that they do. But then secondly, he says long-suffering. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. That word literally means to be long-tempered. It's it's a long fuse. You ever heard of somebody? Well, they sure have a short fuse. Well, to be long-suffering means you have a long fuse, and so it speaks of a patient endurance of trials and afflictions. It's the opposite to the person who has a short fuse of that person who flies off the handle at the slightest provocation. And so the person who exhibits long-suffering knows what it is like to be hurt by others. They know what that feels like. They know what it is to be wrong, mistreated. They know what it is to be attacked by others. And yet this person also knows how to control the reaction to the actions of other people. They endure the hurtful things that other people do around them without a desire to retaliate or to attack back. And so Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 through 15, Now we exhort you, brethren, Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and and to all men. That is to be the manner of our lives as well. Not he wasn't just writing to the Thessalonians, he's writing that to us as well. That should be the manner of our life. Long suffering. Patiently endures the, these people who, who get under our skin, who aggravate us, who, who irritate us. Long suffering has the power to attack back, but it doesn't, you see. Long suffering understands the spirit of Romans chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, where there in verse 21 it says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, True long-suffering manifests itself through a life that humbly ac- accepts the bumps in the road without complaint or anger or vindictiveness. Long-suffering never quits, and so it patiently serves the Lord in spite of the hardships on the, along the way. Biblical humility causes you to be long-suffering with other people, but it also causes you to be long-suffering to the will of the Lord. You see, this truth is seen in the lives of so many of the great characters throughout, throughout Scripture. Uh, they may have felt like they weren't being treated right at certain particular times in their life, by the Lord even. But they continued on. They continued to serve Him. They continued to be faithful. We think about men like Abraham, men like Noah, men like Moses and David and Jeremiah, men like the Apostle Paul are all examples of a long-suffering man in action. But then we see forbearance. He says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another. Forbearing. That word means to put up with. It's to speak of our ability to be able to, to tolerate others. Forbearance is the ability to accept people just as they are without wanting them to change in order to be worthy of your love. Now, that's, that's hard for us. That's a hard command for us. And here's why. The reason is, is because people are Weird. Okay, you know this. You've been to Walmart. (laughs) People are weird. Folks are odd out there, okay? And here's the other thing we have to understand. So are we. We're weird and we're odd. Just ask your spouse. You got some weird stuff going on and they put up with it. That is forbearance. The Bible is clear that we are to give people the room to be who they are. We tolerate each other. That's part of unity. And so when we walk in pride, we will judge us, others if they don't meet our standards. If they don't do everything the way that we want them to do it, we judge them if they aren't just like us. And we judge them when they, when they do the least little thing different than the way that we would have done it. You show me someone who stands in judgment of the actions and lives of others, and I'll show you someone who has a struggle with the issue of pride in their life. And that's what Paul's saying here. If we're going to have genuine unity in the church, tolerance of others is an absolute essential. We have to learn to be forbearing. If we expect people to conform before we accept them, then we've missed the whole point of grace. You see, that's what Jesus does for us. The Lord did not expect you to change before he loved you. He he called you and he saved you. And then he began to change and clean up your life. And so many folks, and maybe you're one of them this morning, they say, well, I'll come to Jesus once I get everything cleaned up, once I get my life in order. That's never going to happen because people are weird and people are odd. You're like that. You're not going to get cleaned up. You're not going to make things right until you come to Jesus and you bring all your junk and you bring all your weirdness and you bring all the odd things you do you bring all that to Jesus and you let him clean it up and he, you let him fix all the quirks in your life that need to be fixed only then will you become who he's called you to be you're never going to do it trying to clean yourself up you don't have the strength you don't have the power you see he knew that He knew that we couldn't change. Jesus knew we couldn't change. If we could have changed, if we could have made ourselves better, do you think he would have gone to the cross? Do you think Jesus would have suffered on the cross of Calvary if we could have done it ourselves? No, he wouldn't have, but we couldn't, and he knew that. And so he took you just as you were, warts and all, and he saved you while you were yet still in your sin. And he didn't ask you to change a thing before you came to him. Not a thing. He said, you bring it all to me. All the junk. You bring it all to me. You lay it all down there at the foot of the cross. And he just took you like you were. And then he made you who he has called you to be. Don't try to clean yourself up. Just simply come to Jesus and watch what he does with your life. He expects that same attitude to be displayed in our lives as well, though. As his disciples, as his followers, he calls us to live that same kind of life. True humility will manifest, will manifest itself in forbearance. And forbearance allows us to love people just like they are. Warts and all. Genuine tolerance is not a facade. That is, we don't pretend to accept, we don't pretend to love others outwardly while innerly we resent them. who they are and what they're still dealing with it's not what it truly means genuine tolerance makes allowances for the faults and the failures of others for the differences in personality and ability and temperament it makes allowances there genuine tolerance speaks of of positive love even to those who irritate us who disturb us who embarrass us we just go on loving them anyway because that's what Christ has done for us But then lastly, lastly in verse 2, look what he speaks of. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in what? In love. In love. This word love really is tied to forbearance. You see, we are to tolerate one another in love. We're not just to tolerate one another and roll our eyes. No, we're to tolerate one another in love. And there's a big difference there. The word speaks of our passion for one another. The only way that we will ever walk in true lowliness and meekness, long-suffering, forbearance, is for us to truly love one another the way that Christ loves us unconditionally. If 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 I love you like he loves you, then I will accept you like you are without expecting you to change, to become more like me. I want you to become more like him. That's what it really is about. This kind of love, his kind of love, always seeks God's best for one another. The best for the one who is the object of that love. Thus, when we love someone, we will automatically place them ahead of self, exhibiting true humility, restraint, patience, and loving tolerance. And so, this kind of love is commanded to us in Matthew chapter 22, but also in in an even clearer way, by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, let's, let's go there. Turn with me back to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Let's just look at that real quick. Might make it easier as we go through this. So let's look at just a quick glance back. Let's look at verses 1 through 8. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have, well, let's change charity to love so we understand what we're talking about, and have not love." I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaulteth not itself. It is not puffed up, doth not behave itself Unseemingly seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never faileth. But where there are prophecies, they shall fail. Where there are tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Love. The first thing we see there in verse 4, love suffereth long. That word means patient endurance under provocation. The literal meaning of that word is to be long-tempered. This characteristic of love reveals the truth that love does not retaliate. Also there in verse 4, love is kind. This word refers to the act of goodness that goes forth on behalf of others. And so genuine love is never hateful or mean, but it respects others and reaches out to them. Also there in verse 4, loveth, envieth not. True love is not jealous over the abilities and over the possessions of others. Instead of being jealous when other people prosper, excel, love is pleased when others do well. But then we also see there in verse 4, love vaunteth not itself. Literally that means does not make a parade of itself. Love does not brag. It does not draw attention to itself itself or to what it is doing a person who must be the center of attention and is hurt when they're not deals with that issue also in verse four love is not puffed up love is not arrogant or proud but it realizes that all it has and all that it is has been given to it by God no matter how great our talents or how spectacular our gifts everything we are is the result of God's divine grace but then in verse 5, we see that love does not behave itself unseemingly. Love is never rude, but it always treats others with compassion and consideration and with respect. Love controls the emotions. It's not friendly one day and then, then rude the next. Genuine love always makes Jesus look good. Also there in verse 5, love seeketh not her own True love is never selfish and self-centered, but is actively interested in the, the, the profit of others. It never looks at itself first, but it always considers another a held of self. Also in verse 5, love is not easily provoked, meaning love. true love keeps no record of evil done to it. But true love is, is, is willingly enduring slights and injuries. This characteristic of love reminds us that love does not demand its own rights. It is willing to yield to the will of others. True love only responds in anger to that which angers God. All things are handled through forgiveness. Also in verse 5, love thinketh no evil. Literally that phrase means takes no worthless inventory. Two thoughts here. First, genuine love does not attribute evil motives to everyone. That is, every action is not seen in the most negative light. Instead, who thinks the best of others, not the worst. But then, secondly, genuine love does not keep a record of evils done to it. In other words, it doesn't dwell on what others may have done, it lets it go. As Elsa would sing, let it go. Let it go. Think no evil. I have a three year old. So. Also, in verse 6, love rejoiceth not in iniquity. Love does not rejoice in sin, whether it is its own sins or the sins of others. Love actually hates sin. Love does not rejoice when others fall into sin, whether we'll admit it or not. Sometimes we kind of rejoice when somebody falls into sin because we say, well, look at that. Look at what they're doing. I would never have done that. And we think it makes us look good. It doesn't. It doesn't. God hates it when anybody falls into sin. That's why we must have a true love for others. We must be willing to go to those who are in in those situations and and try to lovingly bring them back. True love does not gossip or rejoice when another believer falls but is hurt with the injury of that member. Also in verse 6, love rejoiceth in the truth. While love hates all forms of evil, love always rejoices in the truth. It loves the truth. It rejoices in the truth. When truth is proclaimed and when truth wins the victory, love is glad for truth. Even when that truth may hurt, love is glad when truth wins the day. In verse 7, love beareth all things. Love patiently endures and overlooks the faults of others. The word beareth literally means to cover. And so instead of parading the failures and the faults of others before all the world to see, love covers them over and continues to love in spite of those things. Also in verse 7, love believeth all things. Love always places the best possible interpretation on everything that's happening. It doesn't always seek the most negative answer, but it believes that good will triumph in any situation. Basically, love trusts, love believes, and love has confidence in the one love. You turn on the news, and everything is cast in the most negative way possible. Always looking for the negative. Love is the opposite. Love says, what can I shine the light on? Where where is the positive? Let me me focus on that. Also in verse 7, love hopeth all things. Love always expects the best possible outcome. Love refuses to accept failure. Love always holds out hope that things will work out right in the end. Also in verse 7, love endureth all things. This is a military term that means that love does not give up the forts. Endureth all things. It stands its ground. It continues in spite of of everything that can be thrown against it. It continues in spite of persecution and ill treatment. Love bears the unbearable, believes the impossible, holds on to the incredible, and never gives up. The word stop does not exist in the vocabulary of love. Love just keeps on going. But then in verses 8 through 12, it says, Love never faileth. So, when everything else in this world has passed away, when everything that is held in such high esteem is gone, when knowledge and gifts no longer matter, love will still exist. It is the great constant throughout eternity. And there are times when love may lose a battle, in that the object of one's love may never return that love. And yet, while it may lose a battle, here and there, love has already won the war. You see, the idea here is that not of success. The idea is one of endurance. So when, one, so when other things have been removed from view, there will still be love. It doesn't give in, give up, or give out. Love that is real is love that will last. And so if we are honest, well, it meant that these are some hard verses for us to really take in and say, that's what my life is supposed to look like. The reason is none of these qualities are automatic. They, they require constant work. They, they require constant effort if we're to live the way Christ has called us to live. If we would walk in unity as a body of believers in Christ, every one of these qualities is essential for that unity. We can't say, well, I'll take that this one and I'll leave that one alone. No, we need them all. The only way that we will ever achieve the high calling of this verse is for each of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And when we are yielded to the Lord and filled with his spirit, we are brought to that place where we cease to matter anymore. It's all about him. When we get there, nothing matters to us but him and his will, and we will have no problem walking in lowliness and meekness and longsuffering, forbearance, and in love. And so until we get there, true unity within the body of Christ will always elude us. Maybe the Lord has touched a tender spot in your heart this, this morning and you'd like to talk to him about your need. We want you to know you can do that this morning. Maybe there's this morning an individual, maybe maybe several of you this morning, and you recognize that you don't yet have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe you've, you've been making those excuses Maybe you've been saying, well, I've just got so much that I need to clean up before I come to Christ. It'll never happen. He wants it all. Just bring it all to him. He died for all that junk. So just bring it to him. He knows about it already. Don't think you're going to surprise him. Just bring it to him. Admit you're a sinner and say, God, I don't have anything to bring that's of any worth. But will you take me? And he will say, absolutely, I died for you. That's the worth that I place on you. That I died for you. If you need a relationship with him, would you come this morning? would you say yes to him he's waiting Lord, heavenly father we thank you we thank you for the beautiful path that you've shown us to unity it's not easy because lord it does take work it takes effort on our part constant if we're to be who you've called us to be but lord you've given us everything we need in your spirit and so lord this morning i know that we've got some folks that just may need to come to this altar and pray but we've got others that need to be saved today and they know they do They know there's a spiritual battle going on right now for their soul. Lord, help them to just take that step and to say yes to you. Help them to come. Lord, I'd love to just sit down with them and talk to them about how they can come to know you. Lord, if there's even one today, help them to take that step. Help them to not put off this this most important of decisions even one more day. Lord, save them. Change them as only you can. And we'll give you all the honor and glory and the praise for it. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to our broadcast today from Bryansburg Missionary Baptist Church. If you need spiritual help with your relationship with the Lord, please call 270-527-3757. Also, we would like to invite you to attend our services. On Sunday morning, Sunday school begins at 10 a.m. and our worship service is at 11 a.m. On Sunday evening, discipleship training begins at 5 p.m. with our worship service at 6 p.m. You may also view our Sunday worship services live on Mediacom Inspiration Channel 93. On Wednesday night, our worship service begins at 7 p.m. Once again, thanks for listening, and may God bless you and your family.